it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. I was on Twitter recently and I saw a post by actress Tashina Arnold, who has been a guest on this podcast. Tashina posed this question to her followers. Honest question. What can we as black women in America do to stop aiding in the emasculation of black men in America? Well, Tashina, challenge accepted. So our word of the week is emasculation. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Now, my first response when I saw the question is my face just kind of scrunched up, not in anger, not in disgust, more like confusion. It seemed like an odd question to me. And I wondered briefly if this was somehow a subtweet about the Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith situation, since I have seen so many opinions about how Will slapping Chris Rock is somehow Jada's fault because of her continued emasculation of her husband. That is what supposedly drove him to embarrass himself and his family before a worldwide audience. But assuming Tashina wasn't trying to be messy, I decided to give her question some thought and I got nothing because in my mind, as a group, as a community, black women do not emasculate black men. In fact, we do the opposite. We protect black men often to our detriment, often at the expense of our well-being. Do we challenge black men? Hell yeah. Do we hold them accountable? Absolutely. But we do it because we're so invested in their success. We know that as a community, we cannot have success without them. But I'm the type of person who doesn't want to lean into my own understanding. So I decided to reach out and ask a friend of mine, a black man, what he thought of the question Tashina Arnold posed. He had a very lengthy response, but I'll share it. He said, it's hard being a black man. We don't have active and genuine advocacy, and we generally speaking do not receive the support of black women. We are constantly challenged to fit into this new idea of what a black man should be without having any input on what that looks like. And it's hard to speak with black women about how we feel. We are often spoken at, not communicated with, and we are not allowed to express how our fears are manifesting themselves and how we are struggling to gain respect and acknowledgement, how we are also undervalued professionally. We are told how to be men. If we offer our perspective, we are told that we're mansplaining. If we act on feeling or instinct, we are called hypermasculine. If we don't act, we're cowards. There is no right answer, but all of the suggestions we hear are dismissive of the reality of how black men are viewed in this society. There is no dialogue and what's happening in our existence is being compared to that of white women. Instead of hearing each other, we're thrusted into this oppression contest of who has it worse when in reality, if you're black, you have it hard. For black men, in my opinion, unless we are now fully in support of how, why and where black women are moving, we are not heard or considered. We are not men unless we are men the way a black woman feels we should be men. We are often told how our relationships with black women have been. We are not asked. It's like we're children or tools in a campaign, but not consistently receiving respect, consideration or understanding unless our thoughts and expressed opinions prioritize the agenda of black women. Well, that was a lot. And after he shared that he never received any emotional support or encouragement from his own mother until he reached a certain professional status and how generally he felt disregarded by black women when he was a struggling professional. My first response was, what kind of black women you've been hanging out with? His mother notwithstanding. And then I was reminded of something a friend of mine said about dating black men. She spoke about how sometimes it was hard dating black men because the trauma of being a black woman and the trauma of being a black man are constantly at war with each other. She wasn't saying it like she was ready to give up on dating black men, but she had just been through a few particularly rough relationship experiences and was feeling emotionally exhausted. After reading my black male friend's opinions, I have to say it was a little jarring. I certainly appreciated his honesty because while I disagreed strongly 
with his premise that black women don't support black men because hello history it did make me think more about the intersection and collisions of our respective traumas there is blame if we're calling it that in fact let's not call it that there is introspection to be had on both sides while i hate using personal anecdotes to feed base generalities very few of my black male friends have ever been to therapy Meanwhile, more than half of my female friends are actively engaged in therapy. I think our community has gotten so much better when it comes to accepting that caring for our mental health isn't a luxury. It's a requirement. But I still don't feel as if black men really see this as an option. Self-work has to be done. I see so many black women working on themselves, actively trying to find healing and peace. But I do not see black men doing the same at least not in the same way that we are. This is not a criticism. That is just an observation. I see a lot of them following Kevin Samuels, but not trained therapists. Okay, that was a criticism. For real, let me stop being petty. But I realize black men and women need the same things from each other. As black women, it is our job to provide a bigger safe space for black men to be able to be openly hurt, be frustrated, emotional, angry, tired, or whatever it is they want to feel. That does not mean we have to be an emotional dumpster. But vulnerability does increase intimacy, but most importantly, empathy and understanding. I have seen a lot of black women reduce black men to providers and wallets without requiring emotional growth and stability. And here's something else that's hard to admit. One of the reasons a lot of us women are in therapy is because we're trying to unlearn the dysfunctional relationship habits that we often learn from our parents or from other elders in our family, especially our mothers. Some of us, and by us, I mean me, were raised by traumatized black women who were so fearful that what happened to them would happen to their own daughters. And they raised us not to be vulnerable, not to trust, not to need a man, because in their mind, needing one could be dangerous and life altering. I'm not coming for our elders, I promise you. But when some of us point to how in the 50s and 60s or in previous generations, the marriage rate in our community was so much higher and the divorce rate was so much lower, what we fail to recognize, acknowledge or admit is that so many of the people in those marriages were miserable. Sure, there were people who married for love and were together for many years, but considering women had limited pathways to upward mobility outside of marriage, a lot of our aunts, grandmothers, mothers were miserable and suffering inside of marriages in ways they would never tell us or we didn't know until much later on. And it wasn't always on black men. Some of it was incompatibility or lack of emotional connection or just because they married because it was convenient and expected. Black men may not want to hear this, but we will never be those women again. And we're not going to settle and we're not going to suffer. At least not the great many of us. Yes, I have heard many of us say that we don't need a man, but I think we need to analyze what that means. Need implies something you can't live without. Need implies something that you have to have in order to function. Many black women are enjoying and exploring what their happiness looks like outside of a man and outside of traditional marriage. I find these explorations to be healthy. But don't get it twisted. We want black men. We want black men to be leaders in our communities and in our homes. We want to respect them and we want to love them the way that they deserve. And most importantly, the way they want to be loved. But want and need are two different things. Black women are not trying to erase black men as many of them fear or suggest. But a lot of what black men need to figure out, we can't fix. Emasculating black men does nothing for us and has never been our default setting. Emasculation, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. It feels weird to call today's guest a rising star, but that's probably the best way to put it, even though she was a Disney starlet. She's currently a star on one of the hottest shows on television. And as an aside, sis stays dressed. Her default mode is to slay. The character she plays is one of the most memorable in television history, a character who also understood the importance of high fashion. She is a great young actress, a social media force, and a dynamic singer who currently has a single out called Caliber, which we'll discuss in a few moments. Last week's episode featured a star from the hit show Bel Air, and I decided to run it back with another star from that show. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Coco Jones. 
brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, uh, Coco, just knowing the trajectory of your career and more importantly, how honest you've been about how your career has gone. I am really eager to hear how you answer this question that I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? I think at a certain point, I became unbothered with what everyone else was doing and just focused on me. But I still feel like with myself, I'm very bothered about the goals that I want and like the things that I want to achieve. But I had to become unbothered because comparing is a thief of joy. Like I couldn't keep my eyes on my own journey if I was always watching what other people were doing and questioning why that wasn't me. And um, I became unbothered about hate and negativity a a while ago, just because I've been in the industry a while and I know like not everyone's gonna like you. So that just became something I don't care about. But yeah, I would say I'm unbothered and I'm bothered, but I'm bothered about the right things, the things that I can control, the things about me. Well, you have um, a lot to be proud of because uh, as we're recording this, they made the announcement pretty recently that they're picking up Bel Air for not just one season, but two seasons. Uh, So how do you feel about that? Well, you know, what's crazy. When Bel Air was bought by Peacock, it was bought for two seasons. So y'all may have just heard that, but we already knew that security. I'm like, thank you, God. Not only do I get a job, but like, I'm definitely going to get to do this job one more again, at least, you know, it's a type of structure that's so like hard to come by in this industry, which for me, I like structure. So um, it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling of security. And then also, I already know that the audience really likes our show. So it's going to be even better to film this time, knowing that we won't be like, holding our breath when it drops, you know? So let's uh, walk through the origin story that you have with this show. So how did you land this role? I auditioned for Hillary just like I would any other audition. What was different about this one was I didn't want to audition. Honestly, I didn't see myself fitting the role of Hillary. I was just basing it on the OG version of Hillary, and I didn't feel like I looked like her. I didn't feel like I could act like that. I just didn't see myself as the role. And I had a lot of limiting beliefs. I was like, can I audition for Ashley? My manager was like, girl, girl, Ashley's 12. If you don't read this part. So I was like, okay. So I did this audition with those thoughts in the back of my mind. So I know that wasn't my best. Nothing is your best when you're already doubting that you're qualified, you know? So I actually was surprised when Morgan Cooper, our creator and director called me to talk about the role, I was like, hello? So he was basically saying like, hey, I've been watching you. Like, I know what you can do. He was like, just do that. Don't don't think about what we want. I, I'm curious at what you have, what you bring to the table is really good. Keep doing that. And I was like, okay. Like, I didn't have to put a box on myself. So then I did this other audition that I felt like was really good. Then I was going to have a final audition where I go in in person. And, you know, Pandemica has made it so that most of these auditions give self-tape, which I don't know. Some people love that and some people hate it. Me personally, I'm like, what the hell do I live in L.A. for then? But it's not. Um, (laughs) So I was going to go in person, but they were like, actually, we're just going to use your first tape. Thanks. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, it was nice meeting you guys. Thank you so much for considering me. But I definitely didn't get that. And then I got a couple, I got a, a couple of later, I got a call that I got it. And I was so shook. I was shook. So um, you said you didn't envision yourself as, as Hillary. What was the part you weren't seeing exactly? If I'm being honest. Please. I didn't think I, <laughs> you know, not light skinned. And I thought they wanted a light skinned girl. Just, just me putting two and two together. Cause I've never auditioned for a show that was a remake of another show, a reimagining of another show. You know, I know that's something you've talked about a lot is the uphill battle that dark skin actresses in Hollywood face. And so we'll we'll get to that in a moment. I just remember when the trailer for this show dropped and 
everybody lost their mind. They could not believe it. There was equal parts. Like As soon as I saw it, I loved it because I love taking things in different direction. The risk. I was like, wow, I have never thought that this could be that. But then there was a faction of people who was like, no, we don't want to see this. We want Will to still be goofy and Hillary to still be kind of clueless. Like, that's what we want. I was just nervous. If they liked the show, if they like our version of it, then we really did that. And if they don't, then damn, I don't know what to do now. So, um, yeah, I guess nervous was my was my main feeling. Nervous about how people would react. You're right. Like people can be a tough crowd, especially about something that they love. It's funny because I was very pleasantly surprised and, you know, it gave me all the feels to see that you all had uh, Aunt Viv number two (laughs) and you had the original Will's mom in the sitcom. They both made guest appearances in the show. Was that always the plan to try to maybe integrate that nostalgia? And, And what do you think? How do you think that helped the series itself? Oh, that was always the plan. Um, the scripts would change so much. So we'd be like, we'd get a first draft and we'd be like, oh, shoot, they're going to try to have da 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 in the show. And by the end, we'd be like, okay, they must have not wanted to do that. Or maybe it didn't work out with scheduling. So whenever we could get somebody and it worked out, it was like a pleasant surprise. You know, when you have the OGs on the show, it's kind of like, you're in, like we approve, you know? So it, it kind of helps the narrative that what we're doing here is special when, you know, the OGs support it. Now, you admitted being apprehensive at first because you didn't know how the audience would receive it. But was there a point either based off script or audience reaction where you realize we really have something special here? I felt like it was something special from the first table read. I mean, that's when everyone's kind of nervous and, you know, all the cast is there. And actually, not all of the cast was was finally casted yet when I did my first table read with everyone. But I know like a, a lot of them were casted. And I remember I was highlighting my lines because like, I'm always trying to like, you know, make sure I'm ready. Don't nobody, I'm not going to stop the show. So I was highlighting my lines and Jabari who plays Will like spoke. And I literally looked up and then Stevante who plays Will's best friend, he spoke. And I, I literally like just started to watch everyone do their lines. And I was like, Oh, Oh, this is good. This is good. Because sometimes you do a table read and you're like, how did you get this job? You know, how are you here? It, and it seems like the cast is legitimately tight knit. Is that fair to say? And and how did you think that closeness, how did it develop? I mean, well, first of all, when you're spending 15, 16 hours with somebody every day, you're going to start to talk about your lives and find some similarities. But I think we are all so humble and happy to be there And um, you could feel that, you know, you can feel when people are just like authentic and they're kind. And so, yeah, like we just all bonded because we're all similar in that. Yeah, we're just we're just happy to be there. We want to win. We want to work. And also everybody's kind of multi-talented. Like we would be giving seven part harmony when they call cut. Okay, it was just so fun. Well, the um, amazing part, and I think it's been a little jarring, but at the same time, jarring in a good way. It was the two things I had to most get used to was Uncle Phil being kind of fine. I was like, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I was like, I'm not used to looking at Uncle Phil like he kind of good looking. And then he's stepping. I'm like, <laughs> Uncle Phil got a whole new, I'm crying. got a whole new swag <laughs> what I'm used to. And of course, the second being <laughs> Carlton uh, being uh, a little, you know, more, a little darker than we're used to seeing him and we knew it was going to be different. Like everybody knew Carlton wasn't going to be the same Carlton that we knew, but um, it took such a interesting turn because I think it, it humanized Carlton, but at the same time and uh, your co-star Ali, I don't want to mispronounce his last name. I mean, is he aware about the opinions about Carlton? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, he loves it. He loves it. You know how people be like, you don't want the smoke. He wants the smoke. He he enjoys the smoke, quite honestly. So yeah, he's very aware, but he he sees it. He thinks it's so funny. I don't know. He gets a kick out of it. Yeah, I mean, I I was not liking Carlton for many episodes, but they, I knew that he was going to make a turn because it, it, it's sort of following the arc. Now, as for what you envisioned for Hillary, once you got the part and once you're locked in, what did you want to bring to Hillary that you felt like would make her character robust? I think just her 
hustle. I think that is what makes her grounded that she's trying to thrive in this environment that is always, you know, trying to make her question her value. I think her tenacity makes her story um, very relatable. Um, but when it comes to the fashion stuff, all right, can't touch this. Shout out to MC Hammer because she don't play about them outfits. Um, but yeah, I think just her striving to achieve these things that even though she's in this upper echelon type of upbringing, you can't buy what she's striving for. You have to earn it. Yeah, her story is somewhat similar to your story. And, uh, you know, I remember the episode in particular where, you know, you're going back and forth with your mom, obviously Aunt Viv, and talking about how you didn't want to compromise your blackness and who you were just to get on. And that's something it seems like you've been through in your real career, in real life. And I'm wondering, um, especially after watching your, your YouTube video, what happened to Coco? How have you learned to balance that? Like, um, cause it's tough regardless of any profession that you're in is that trying to bring your full authenticity to the table, but at the same time, knowing that everybody's not going to always accept that. I mean, that's where I become unbothered where I don't let whoever's not accepting me affect me. I give my best to every opportunity and then I leave it there. Like if I don't fit that role, I'm not gonna harbor on why. I'm gonna move on because I know that what is for me is so for me that it's like, I don't, I don't look back at all the people that told me no, I'm grateful for them. So that's where I kind of stay unbothered. Well, in that YouTube video, which was very courageous to do, especially in an industry like Hollywood, um, you, you know, you were 22 um, just a couple of years ago when you did it and you were essentially detailing why you didn't get on when you thought you did or thought you should have. And you were very candid about the colorism that you have experienced in Hollywood. How significant of a problem is colorism in Hollywood? Honestly, I do think it is getting better with more of the Issa Rays and the, the Shondas who come and they create these roles and opportunities for women that look like them. And those opportunities to create the role are present. So it is getting better for sure. I think it just looks like more Black people telling Black stories instead of any other race telling a Black story so that you can give people of all shades more. We all just deserve more. <laughs> but, you know, with time, more has happened and more will continue to happen because like shows like Bel Air with Morgan Cooper, anything that black people do, we're going to do it amazing. We are that. We really are. So I think with more time and more opportunities, colorism will be less of a problem. It's getting better. So how were you able to handle that early on when you didn't reach this place now where you kind of can put it in perspective? You know, what did it do to your psyche? I think, um... At the time, I just kept going. I couldn't really evaluate what that was doing to my mental. I just kept going. I'm like, okay, another note. Let's go, let's go, let's go. I'm not going to stop. I think it's when I started to like not try because I was like, uh -uh, I'm not, I don't want this no. You know, like already assume it was a no. That's when I was like, why am I doing that? Why do I keep doing that? And that's when I actually, when I started going to therapy was around the time where I did that, uh, what happened video just because um i just would be like why am i doing that what is that it's not normal do the light-skinned girls do that no they don't why am i doing that i need to stop doing that what does that mean i think it's amazing uh the amount of constant infusion of self-confidence that actors have to have because you're rejected so often and I don't know what that would do to me, especially if you hear some of the reasons, like if you get some of the feedback, because it's never something that you can change. You know, it's always something that is like, oh, well, you know, I mean, I know that uh, she kind of backpedaled a little bit, but Zoe Kravitz telling the story about saying like, yeah, they said I was it was too I was too urban. I was like, I mean, what you what do you do with that feedback? You know what I mean? And you said something that a lot of black actors, I've heard them say, I had Shirley Ralph on the podcast recently and before her, Anjanou Ellis, and they both Ooh. ran into that. Yeah, two heavyweights, right? They both ran into hearing this phrase that I know you're familiar with. We don't know what to do with you. And I know that's a phrase that you're <laughs> familiar with when it comes to black actors. What does that even mean? 
<laughs> you know what's crazy? I actually have heard that. I've heard that in music more than I've heard that in acting. I've heard she's too urban in acting. She's too tall. I would get that one a, a good bit. I'm kind of tall. Or just like she's great, but like she's great, but we're going a different direction. Oh, I wish, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, be rich. We don't know what to do with you. I don't blame you, you know, like, especially if you don't look like me, you know, you probably won't know what to do with me. That's why we need more black people telling black stories because they do know what to do with you. You know, they do know where you would fit perfectly. I would never say to like ingenue, I don't know what, I'd be like, you could do this and this. You are so worthy, you know? I wouldn't expect certain people to get it. And you know, that's really all that that is, is just um, lack of understanding lack of understanding what we represent and what all we can represent. And there's nothing you can do when somebody gives you that comment, but move on to the next person and somebody will understand. And when they do, that's when you become ingenue, the, you know? <laughs> well, it's, um, it's something that black women hear across a lot of industries. And I always say, um, and I'll say it cause I know you necessarily can't. I always say like, I'll figure out what the fuck to do with these white people. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying. Yeah. I was like, they do. I mean, all the time I was like a talent, a ta <laughs> yeah, a talented white actress in your uh, position. They know what to do. They make you fucking Scarlett Johansson. That's what they do. Okay, so it is frustrating for me to hear it on your behalf, even though obviously I'm not in it as you are. For me, it would just make me pissed off. Might even make me a little bit bitter. So how did you avoid feeling that and have the motivation to keep going? I've felt those feelings before. I've felt those feelings. I just didn't um, stay there, but I've been there and I didn't quickly move on. I, I lived there for a little bit and then I just had to look at it logically. Okay, yes, there've been so many, there's that formula, that Scarlett Johansson formula, that's all they know. And you know what? It's kind of all we do for a while. That's all you'd see in media. So just keep doing that, what you see, you know, until somebody changes the narrative and you see something else. You see a Viola, you know, or you see an ingenue, you see Kerry Washington in Scandal, and then you're like, oh, okay. You know, like we just need to make more opportunities so that there's more on screen that doesn't look like that same old, same old formula, you know? But yeah, I've been bitter. <laughs> so, um, you know, as you looking at how your career started, I mean, you, you obviously were in the, in the Disney family and things didn't break the way that you thought that they would break. I mean, some of it was people promising you opportunities that they never made good on and, you know, other things that, that happened at any point, did you ever think maybe I should quit this? Oh, yeah. And I'm thankful for my parents and my mom because I would be like right on my last straw and she just would not let me make the wrong decisions. I would like imagine the younger version of me or I would go back and look at younger versions of me and how much I wanted it. Like I can see myself and I can know exactly what was going on in my mind and when I was on that stage, I can know exactly how that feels. So I can go right back there. And I'd be like, what if I give up and I was going to be good? What if I, I can't live with that? What if like, so sometimes I would feel trapped because I'd be like, I want to be done here, but I am so scared to regret really being done here. And in those moments, I just went to in and out and watched The Office. Cause like, what am I supposed to do? That's a hard place to be. And I'm literally caught between a rock and a hard place. So I might as well kick it here. And then the next day I'd be better because emotions, they are temporary. And then maybe I get into that corner again where I'm like, I want to be done, but I'm not going to be done. What do I do? Look, what I'm saying though, with that theme is that if I knew I wasn't going to give up, I had to find like some happiness, like go kick with my girls, like, or like, don't do nothing. But like, what makes you happy? Talk to your family, FaceTime, leave. I would fly out. I'd be out of there. Like, I'm not like giving up. I'm just like, okay, this is a lot right now. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to do something fun, but I'm not going to give up. Like I couldn't live with giving up. So I just had to keep going. Well, I, there's so many cool things about you, but I have to say the fact that you are super into the office might be top three and it ain't three. Okay. Cause that's my show. Right? So <laughs> of course, when I read that girl, that is my show. That is my show. When I read that, I was like, oh, my God, 
we kindred like she, <laughs> so i have some office questions for you okay that we will be addressing in the second half of this podcast but right now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with the fabulous coco jones we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So during Word of the Week, you all heard me talk about how some of us Black women have learned unhealthy, dysfunctional relationship habits from our mothers or generally the women in our families. And this isn't to say that we don't learn those from our fathers or the men in our families, too. But for now, I'm just going to focus on the women. And I have a story to tell about some of the unhealthy habits I learned from the women in my family. First, let me share this between my mother, grandmother and great aunt. They've been married a total of eight times. Now, when we were all together years ago, I reminded them of this and they were not amused. I, on the other hand, thought it was funny as hell. Practically every story I heard from them involving men was always disturbing, but to them, it was normal. For example, the only thing my grandmother ever told me about my grandfather, my mother's father, are about the two times she tried to kill him. My grandfather, JC, was a drunk, an alcoholic, and I don't know if he was even the functioning kind. One night he came home drunk, which he did frequently, and he started up with my grandmother, meaning he started physically abusing her and verbally abusing her as well. And my grandmother wasn't having any of it. My grandfather got tired of fighting and he finally passed out drunk on their bed. And while he was asleep, my grandmother placed a pillow on his face, leaned her full body weight on him and tried to smother him to death. Now, I don't know why she didn't go through with it. She never really said. And considering the level of abuse she routinely received, I'm actually surprised that she didn't. I'm glad she didn't, but I'm surprised that she was able to have some self-control. The other time she tried to kill him, she tried to shoot him, but the gun jammed. Now, there was a theme and pattern with my grandmother, great aunt and mother. They had endless stories of fighting back. And so often their message to me wasn't necessarily to not engage in these type of relationships, but to see it as an expected part of the process. They had accepted that this is just how relationships worked. And the best way to protect yourself was to simply fight harder than the man who might be abusing you. They were teaching me a lesson, just not the lesson they thought they were teaching me. Instead, what I learned is that I never, ever wanted that kind of dynamic in any relationship I was in, and I've never had it. Based off their stories, I also was driven to break the cycle of divorce. They are a big reason I waited until my early 40s to get married. I wanted to be as sure as possible that I was in love. And that I was in love with someone who loved, respected and cherished me and that I was emotionally mature enough and created enough distance from the normalized dysfunction that I'd grown up with to be a good lifelong partner. And now back to more with Coco Jones. Coco, I want to talk about your your wonderful singing career. Um, You have a single out now, Caliber. Is that correct? Mm hmm. Okay. Let's go back a bit, though. Like, how did you your mom's a vocalist? Uh, is that right? Yes. She sang a lot um, in church and sometimes like younger when she would do pageants. That was like her talent that she would do. Okay. So when did you sort of discover that you had the singing gift? You know, what's crazy. I didn't discover it first. My mom's friend, who was a violinist, I guess, discovered it first. So when I was like a baby baby, like could not ter- talk at all, just just cry. I was singing to Barney. My mom tells me this story and they were talking like near me and they were talking and my mom's friend, this violinist, she like stops them talking and she's like, your, your child has a perfect ear. Like your child is singing Barney back, like exactly with the right pitch and tone, like listen. And so I think she saw it first, but then once I could talk even a little bit, I was singing all the time. Like I would look at videos of myself I'd just be humming and singing and know maybe two words 
but the, I'm singing the whole time, like just humming randomly. It was so interesting to watch. You know, at what point did you reach when you decided, hey, I, I really want to make a career out of this? Like, this is not something I just want to do for fun. So I was playing basketball. I'm tall. And my dad's an athlete. And he was like, so y'all gonna go to college for free. You're gonna play one of these sports. So basketball was, I thought, my journey. And then I did this talent competition at my school. And I was practicing it all the time. I was practicing the sun will come out tomorrow. That's what I was going to sing. And then the way I felt on stage, I won that, by the way, on period. But the way I felt on stage was like, what is this? This is awesome. So um, I just wanted to do that more. I would do other talent competitions. And then somewhere that registered in my mind that this could be a career. And so I was like, all right, I'm calling a permanent timeout on this basketball court because I would be missing practice. Like, my parents are very supportive of whatever passion I have. And I just was like, what is this? I just, I wanted to do it more. I got this karaoke machine and Lord, I broke it almost two weeks later, just going, 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 performing all the time. So I knew um, once like it clicked in my mind, like people get paid for this. I was like, this is going to be my way. Not sports. Sorry, dad. I was about to say your dad had to be really disappointed because uh, your father is a former NFL player. So I'm sure in his mind, he already, you know, had you playing at UConn. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't. I, my dad loves to see this trait that's instilled in all of us, like this hustle, like competitive, like the same feelings that I would channel, like on the court, like, like I would channel that in my music, like. I think he was more impressed that I was so passionate about this. Like I would not go to my friend's house. I'd go to the studio. Like I would go to the studio with my mom like, in my pajamas because I know by the time I'd be done, I need to go to sleep because I'd have to go to school the next day. I would wait in those auditions for hours and not care. So I think they were like, well, she's not playing about this. I guess we really have to support this. This is going to be a long journey. And it was. So, uh, you know, once you, you know, obviously saw that you had a really good natural ability, you started to perform. One of the your early performing venues was doing the national anthems for NFL games, correct? Yeah. yeah. What was that like? <laughs> you know, people would be like, are you nervous? Like, I'd be like, no, I don't know why. I'm like, should I be? I don't know. My mom was like, if you don't want to go on, you don't have to go. I'd be like, girl, pass me that mic. I'm going to run it up. I don't know why I wasn't nervous. It was just so exciting to me. And then um, my mom would call it feeding the monster. Whenever like the crowd would be like, yeah, I'd be like, yeah. Like it would just ignite this flame in me. So like, I remember this one time I was singing, I think this is the one that like my, my really popular um, national anthem video that's out there on the interweb. But like I was singing free and I heard them scream and I was like, and the, uh, like it just like triggered a whole different side of me. So no, I was not nervous. It it just it felt so. It felt like me being in my purpose, and I didn't know that that was what that feeling meant. But now I know. Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, Caliber is a hot single right now, and um, but you know, you've had a lengthy uh music career already, and one of the songs I want to talk to you about is is just my luck because the lyrics from for this song are just so. Um, emotional and so raw. Um, I think that one of the lyrics you have is, do I meet the standard? Do I fit in the box or am I just too much to handle? Um, no, I'm just too much to stop. And even the way the video is shot, it's, you know, you're, you're really bare. So why was it important for you to make this song? Just My Luck surprised me. At that time, I was really trying a bunch of different sounds and styles because I was like, what's going to win? What's going to win? Like, I don't really care what's the most authentic. I'm like, what are people, what do they want to see? I just want to win. So um, I was trying a bunch of different sounds. And then I remember my producer, Kevin Randolph, who made that track, he was playing this dark ass song. And I was like, oh my God, this is so scary. I was like, what is this? And I don't remember how it ended up me starting something to it. But I do remember the lyrics just pouring out of me. Cause at that time I was just like, I had a lot of pent up frustration about the industry. And um, I wrote that song all by myself. And like, I don't know, it just kept pouring out of me. So it surprised me. It surprised me that I even, I remember, I think I was like, let me, let me try something to that. Like, I just was like, what is that? I don't know. And it surprised us. Like afterwards we were like, what the hell is that? It sounds like, just based off how you described it, that 
the the industry was trying to make you something that you weren't and trying to I don't know if tone you down is the right word like what in their mind what did they want you to be marketable I mean that's what this industry is about but it's like what does that even mean though right you know what I mean that means something temporary that is you know sellable um whether that's a style of music whether that's a style whether that's a look you know it's whatever i mean because this industry is about dollars and i wouldn't say that it was just the industry that made me that way like i wanted to be that way too i wanted to i call it win but really i think i was just trying to like be approved like okay if i get up here then i proved good job you did it yes you know cuz i felt like i was so close and then it was taken away from me. So I wanted that again. But I didn't know that if you just be yourself, you'll get an audience that will really rock with you. And they, it won't just be a trend because it's you, you know? It seems like when when you hear that kind of feedback, marketable, sellable, there's something they're looking at, right? Like, I don't know when you really started, uh, when you were first signed like to your, your first record contract, like who was the artist of the moment that you felt like, because mu- music is such a copycat industry. It's just like television, right? And producers hate it when I say this. And this is no disrespect to them. But, you know, they have a tendency that when one thing is successful, they just want to copy it. And they might put in different elements. But it's like, it's still the same idea. It's like, they just want to copy it because it's already been successful. So you're not really taking a risk. So the music industry is the same way. So it's like, if in this moment, you know, Doja Cat is successful, then everybody's like, let's find the next Doja Cat. So was there an artist that you felt like that they wanted you to be? And this is not any shade to that artist, but like, who, like, was there something when they said marketable and sellable? It's like, who did they want you to be? You know? I mean, well, back in the day, the formula was, you know, you do a TV show and you make music and the TV show promotes the music, music promotes the TV show. So it's like hand in hand type of marketing. So I thought I was going to have a TV show. So I got the record deal. The TV show didn't come into play though. It didn't, that didn't pan out. So then they were like, what do we do? Like, that's been our formula. So if anything they wanted me to do, you know what Selena and Demi and all the Disney girls have done, you know? You make a show, you make an album, and they both sell together. But uh, it didn't work out that way. So they were kind of like, we've never done this before. I don't think the formula would have worked on me because I don't look like them. And plus, every time I would sing, I would go off. And they'd be like, okay, wait, that is not what the demo did. I'd be like, oops, I killed it. So, yeah, I would say they wanted me to be um, similar to that formula. Yeah, because when I listen to your music, I don't know. And I don't know if you've heard this comparison. And I realize comparisons are often dangerous because it's as the adage goes, it's the comparison is the thief of joy. But it's giving me Jasmine Sullivan. I don't know. Like, that's who I for some reason, that's who I think of whenever, you know, I listen to you, um, which considering she just won some Grammys. I'd like to think that's a pretty OK comparison, you know. Right. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. So the Disney path can be kind of um hit or miss you know there are people who made it people who didn't um what's it like transitioning out of that you know family and out of that you know kind of disney mold that was hard because you don't know which roles to audition for because i mean well me i've been curvy so i'd be you know 16 looking 20 something and I didn't want to do what the what the roles were like you need to do. So I didn't want to do that. Um, then also I was underage. So certain stuff, I looked like I could play it, but I was too young. That was hard trying to navigate where I fit as far as roles. Like where, what do I even audition for? Like, how do I wear my hair and what, what type of clothes do I wear? You know, like that was hard. Cause then also I'd like audition for like 15, 16 year old, but I'd be looking 18, 19, it was just like, that was irritating. But really the good part about my journey is that one thing that I do feel like child actors really miss is like that social aspect. Like you, you work around other kids stars and you're around a bunch of adults. So you're not a normal kid. You're, you're kind of strange. So what I liked is that I got to like go be a normal kid, kind of like be a normal teenager, because people would be like, is that Roxy? But 
and they'd leave me alone, you know, so I could still like grow. I could still mess up and like not have camera eyes all up on me. And that's what I feel like really helped me to like get back to normal, like be a normal kid who like gets to make the wrong decisions. And it's not all about where am I filming and what time do I have to be on set? It's like just it's whatever normal teenagers deal with. When you uh, started, you know, when you got that record contract and, you know, you're you're looking at music as a pathway. I mean, you know, industry opinions aside, what kind of music did you feel like you wanted to make? I didn't know. For a long time, I didn't know. I mean, I did not know. What I didn't have was I wasn't fully myself when I started music. I was this kid who had been saying lines and saying them well for a really long time. So all I knew how to do was play roles. Didn't know what I was. So I didn't know. Um, that took me a minute to figure out. What do you think was instrumental in helping you figure it out? Because it seems like based off the material you put out now, you've definitely figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> trial and error. Trial and error was so instrumental in my growth because I would try things and they wouldn't work or I would try things and I didn't like it. And then um, eventually you get to something, some sort of sound that feels good. Maybe it's surprising, like just my luck, but it feels right. And then you're like, oh, that's what it's like when it's good for me, when it's authentic to me. Now I know what that feels like. So let me let me find other tracks that make me feel that way. Let me figure out which lyrics make me feel this way, you know? So just my luck, I can very much see the place where that's coming from. The lyrics are pretty straightforward and, and says it all. What about uh, where does Caliber come from? Where Where's that coming from? <laughs> LOL. So Caliber, I, Caliber is how I feel. What caliber is not, it's not me like sunning any guy. I, I would, I, that's not the vibe. What it really is, is I feel like I take music out of it. I am top tier beloved, take status or whatever out of it. I'm going to elevate any, any guy that comes into my contact. I'm going to help you the way you dress. It might not be giving. I'm going to help you with your, with your ideas. That's smart. That might not work. Here's another thought. I, I give I give good feedback. I because I do this with my friends. Like we we help each other. We grow each other. So basically, what I'm saying is how I feel. Like don't come into my energy if you're not going to elevate me. Because I'm going to elevate you. You know. But it's not going to be giving Bob the Builder. It's going to be giving. We both are leveling each other up. Or just don't don't waste your time, babes. Don't do it. <laughs> Wow. So overstand. And, uh, you know, that definitely has given me that upgrade you energy. So if that's the case, then I don't know. What does this Coco Jones dating life look like now um, in 2022? <laughs> if that is your mindset into it, is that something that you feel like has been successful? I'm going to keep it a buck with you now. Some <laughs> of these guys are just disappointing. <laughs> Point blank, period. But I already know that, like, I've seen in my life, sometimes when I'm, like, confused about things, I just go back and look at, like, the patterns in my life. And so I know that, like, how my career has panned out, the right guy for me will be so right that these other, these other frauds will not bother me, you know? I'll be very unbothered, wink. Um, so, yeah, that's going to take time, though. I don't think he's going to pop out of nowhere, you know, Amazon Prime style. That's going to take some time. And I think also like I'm still figuring out my me and my bag and my journey, my career. Like certain things they'll have to be more settled in me, I feel, before I'm like really, really ready, ready. But you know, you can still get on my caliber. That's a PSA <laughs> to all the guys. You can definitely still get on my caliber. Still shoot your cute little shot. Still shoot your cute little shot. Well, I feel like I know the the answer to this because knowing enough uh, act, actors and actresses in Hollywood, I think people have this assumption that um, because of the position that you're in, you know, you're on a hot show, you're obviously gorgeous, that like you have your run, you have your pick of the litter. LOL. Is that is that perception or reality? <laughs> oh my God, that is so perception. What is this? America's <laughs> Next Top Boyfriend? No, I don't have no I pick just, of the litter. I, I, 
Yeah, okay, because I mean, that's the no, assumption I, that everybody has. And I was like, man, some of my friends that are actresses, they'll be like, girl, my DMs dry as fuck. I'm like, damn, really? <laughs> that's hilarious. You know what it is? Um, for me, I feel like, you know that saying it's lonely at the top? I don't feel like I'm at the top whatsoever. But there's a difference in like people's intentions as you as you do bigger things. So it's kind of hard to like, see who people really are. That's why I I really need to give these guys a, a three month trial run. Three months. Because I swear to you, on month three, I'll be like, who is you? Introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. That's a, actually a long time. Yes, it is a long time, but it's also not <laughs> enough because I'll be like, oh my gosh, what the hell? Like who, you, you're reading a different script. Who recasted you, babes? Go back to that energy from the first draft. Irritating me. <laughs> But no, um, there are a lot of options, but not every option is a quality option. Uh, look, as somebody who didn't get married to their 40s, I understand. <laughs> Period. <laughs> yes, I do, I do understand. You, you do have to maybe go through a couple frogs before you eventually find, you know, find the prince. You know, when it happens, it happens. That's as you know from your career. All right, Coco, before I get you out of here. Now, let me warn you, this is when the controversy starts, okay? There's a game Ooh. that I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you I give you two options. You have to pick one, all right? And I'm just saying, like, it's always where the hot takes come. And when people start finding out, they're just like, I never knew. Okay. So first up. Greens or mac and cheese? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese. Now, I, I, mm-hmm. I think I, mm-hmm. in my research, I did see that you make a pretty good mac and cheese. Yes, I did make a mac and cheese on my cooking show with Terrell, T, and Coco. But really, my mom, she can make a mac and cheese. Sometimes on Thanksgiving, I'm like, just just give me the mac and cheese. You know, y'all do y'all's thing. I'm just going to reside here. Really. It's like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, mac and cheese. So good. The worst quality about my husband is that he does not eat mac and cheese. And so I, I you know, I know I just I'm trying to get him there. I'm just like, you got to get here because I don't want to be making a pan for myself. You know what I'm saying? I was like, I need somebody to enjoy this, this goodness um, with me. OK. Grammy or an Oscar? Grammy. Grammy. Well, you, I, I, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in your mind, singing is kind of your first love. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Singing okay. without without singing, I wouldn't have tried acting. Um, so a Grammy is definitely very big on my vision board. I uh, also read that Aretha Franklin is a pretty big influence of yours. So giving him something he can feel or I ain't never loved a man. Mm. Oh, that's tough. Honestly. Oh, that's tough. I don't know. I don't know. You know what? Honestly, I don't have to say chain of fools. Because that whole song was my audition song for a smooth decade. Smooth decade. So that's what I'm going to say. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. You went, the, you went a third route. Uh, I'll allow it because uh, it is, does have the same vibe of uh, I never loved a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, just a uh, memo to the audience. Don't ever listen to that song when you're going through a heartbreak. You'll be like... <laughs> I'm not going to make it. <laughs> You'll be like, where? My heart is never going to heal. Oh, child, I went through a car break at college, and I don't know why I put that song on. I was like, but between that and my life, it got me through. What can I say? <laughs> we all make it through. Whatever songs get us through. Yes. All right. And finally, you mentioned you're a big fan of The Office. I am told by my informants, Dwight Schrute is your favorite character. So... Uh, what was the better Dwight moment? Dwight coming to Michael's rescue when he burned his foot on the Foreman grill or Dwight accidentally beating the hell out of Meredith when that bat was in the office? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, well, you know what? <laughs> he really did Meredith so dirty there. Um, Gosh, I'm going to say the better moment was him going to Michael's rescue because what I'd be saying is I need me a Dwight. I need some somebody with that Dwight energy. You know what I'm saying? I'll be your Michael. You be my Dwight. Like, be there for me. Dwight is loyal. And he he could have left Meredith out of that bat rescue. But what I love about him is that he don't play about Michael. I don't know why, but I need that energy in my life. 
Also, he's a hustler, so he can get his bread. <laughs> That's right. Shrew Farms, right? <laughs> hello? Hello? The man owns land. He loves vegetables. And he'll be loyal to you. Okay, now, do you also watch Parks and Rec? You know what? I do watch it, but I just find myself always going back to the office. You have to do yourself a favor. And listen, I still think the office is the GOAT, right? But I would say the more I watch Parks and Rec, it's closer than you think. Really? You know, and I, I'm I'm down for a good situational, you know, kind of work environment comedy, which is why I love Southside, which is also hilarious. And so... Mm-hmm. I just, I think Parks and Rec kind of gets disrespected a little in the conversation. They got, they got some things. They don't, I don't think they have a character as good as Dwight Schrute, but they, they got some things. Okay. I'll have to get more into it. You, look, just, just start from the beginning. Start from the beginning. So. Okay. And not to mention the office, I think has one of the best series finales ever. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I was very much giving waterworks. (laughs) That was good. Well, listen, uh, Coco, thank you so much for taking time out to join me. You're just amazing. And I know that you are like barely scratching the surface. Bel Air is incredible. And you all did such a great job. And uh, I really love your character. And I can't wait to see how high your career goes, especially God knows what else is on, uh, on your uh, vision board. You might be coming for that EGOT. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Hey, I'm on the way. You you got all the tools. <laughs> you got all the tools. It, it, it could definitely happen. So thank you so much for joining me here. I appreciate it. Uh, Coco is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. I don't know how heaven works exactly, but I really hope they have some kind of mute button up there that allows our ancestors to kind of tune us out when they've been subjected to too much of our earthly foolishness, because I don't even want to think what the conversation may have been between Frederick Booker T, Harriet Sojourner, MLK and Coretta in the heavenly cafeteria after they heard some comments made by rapper Mano on Angela Yee's podcast, Lip Service. And fuck it, I'm bothered on their behalf and behalf of every self-respecting black person. Now, before you hear what Mano had to say, realize that Lip Service is an intentionally spicy podcast, also available on Spotify. I've been on it before, and the topic du jour is always sex. They ask questions like, have you ever had a threesome if you would have pregnant sex? So this is not a podcast for the pearl-clutching crowd. So when Mano was a guest recently, the topic turned to role-playing, and Mano revealed a fantasy he had that honestly, we were all better off not hearing. Take a listen. I like to be like a runaway slave. Okay, no. Mano! Oh, shit! Oh my god! (laughs) I like to play like a runaway slave. Okay. I like to play like a a disobedient slave with a white woman. So tell me like what you say. Yes, Mansa? (laughs) How's the story? I, I, it's just two. It's 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 two of them. Like it's like me getting whooped, right? You get whooped. It's like it's like I play like you whipping, but most of them don't want to play like that. This is this. Yeah, nigga, I was gonna say, like, what white woman goes along with this? They don't want to play like that. They don't. Okay. Wanna, this is my. It's like, listen, you're gonna <laughs> act like your master's your your master's uh, husband, uh, wife, wife, and I'm the runner. And I face. just got whooped by massa for uh, eye, eyeballing okay. me, uh, but the whole time you've been really. You know you, been you like it. Anyway. You been eyeballing me. Oh, uh, this sounds like some freaky porn. I'm interested. Right, this is some freaky shit. And then yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna come all sweaty, right? Just finished getting whooped, and you're gonna say, "No, Billy Joe, no, no, Billy Joe, no." <laughs> Master's not gonna like it. He's not gonna like it. That's what you know Let me you take want, my drink. So now let's go live to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s response. By the power of Dr. Umar, what in the name of the 1964 Civil Rights Act was that? Seriously, who in the hell left the gate all the way open? 
it's the total overshare for me. It's giving, it's giving, I've never read any stories of how the enslaved were beaten, brutalized, degraded, and dehumanized. I'm getting tap dancing, bamboozled, led astray vibes. I know people are into kinky shit. And for most of us, if the fate of the world depended on us having a PG browser history, this world would probably cease to exist. Not me, of course. Black people are the funniest fucking people on the planet. And we often make jokes about things that should not be funny. But some things are better left unsaid. Mano is lucky he wasn't around in Harriet's time because she would have given his ass the wrong location for the meetup to head up north. Stay unbothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it I was born to get it And you don't forget it Sit back for a minute I was born to get it